0: You know, I think it might be a bit of a cliche to say that finishing well is not easy. In fact, it's kind of a problem for us in this world, isn't it? Problem for us in our culture, problem for us in history. Um, in fact, it, it almost seems like for any well known or great person who lives and works and is in the public eye for a long time, it almost seems like it's inevitable that we're going to see their failure. You know, we see this in, in our athletes. Uh, you know, they're, they're at the top of their game, and all of a sudden there's this personal uh, uh, tragedy or personal uh, failure that kind of lets us know that behind the curtain there was something else going on than what we could see on the field or on the court. Uh, we see it in our politicians. You know, just the, uh, the continuing and ongoing uh, onslaught of news that we get day in and day out about different people and different, you know, all, the par- all parties, all sides of the aisle, people who seem to implode or fall apart. And we see it, we see it in pop culture. We see it in our families. We see it in our churches. Uh, it's a real It's a real problem. And in some sense, we could say it's actually understandable that people don't always finish well because, hey, who's perfect? Right? Who's perfect? Not me. You think if someone is in front of people long enough, eventually some of their failures will come to light. Uh, but it, it goes beyond that. It's about actually watching people in their, in their lives crash and burn. You know, that, they, that there's almost like this, this force, this, uh, uh, almost like we have some kind of an enemy who's trying to take us down. Can you guys relate to any of that? I mean, you've seen it. Maybe you've experienced it. uh, Maybe you've been in a church where something like that has happened. Uh, It has happened here in the past. And, you know, it's really sad. For example, when you see pastors with years of fruitful and faithful ministry, only to have it tarnished in the end by some kind of uh, some kind of indiscretion or moral failure, whether it be sexual, financial. Uh, we saw a rash of pastors who actually lost their positions over issues of pride, ego, and bullying over the last 10 years. It's just been, you know, almost uh, almost a surprise if if we weren't clued in to how the human heart works. And And really, you could do like a who's who's list of ministries that have been hurt by this kind of behavior now I'm not going to do that because I don't know that there's any good in listing other people's failures and and probably all of us have a list in our head the moment I mention that there's a who's who of of ministers who failed Um, but you know what you know what I think about when I when I see those things and I process that you know I I kind of switch from from uh, you know maybe my first impulse might be to think what's what that's you know they're horrible like you judge them how could they have done that you know and then maybe I move from there to some kind of compassion oh you know I bet I bet whatever they were going through it must have been hard for that to happen and then I think what happens most often after that is I move to some kind of fear oh God please don't let that ever happen to me and you don't have to be a pastor to feel that way oh Lord please don't let that ever happen to me but you know what Sometimes it does. You know, we could look at the who's who in the Bible <laughs> of this type of behavior, this failing to finish well. You know, I think, of, um, I think of Noah. Noah built this ark to survive the flood of the world. You know, he was faithful to God. For a hundred years, he's hammering away and whatever he's doing to make this ark seaworthy, even though he's nowhere near the ocean. He trusts that God's word is true for that entire time while he's waiting for the floods to come. But then he gets off the boat. He gets a little too much wine. He gets drunk. And it results in two of, two of his sons uh, uh, being okay, but one of them being cursed because Noah couldn't, couldn't watch his drinking. You think of uh, Isaac who loved one son more than the other you know, Jacob and Esau. He loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. And it caused Jacob to be in this really difficult situation and ended up, um, you know, needing to deceive. needing. He, he deceived his father in order to get an inheritance, in order to get a blessing. And then, of course, Jacob carries that kind of behavior with his sons on. He's got 12, but he only seems to care about one of them. You know, Joseph. He gives him that special coat, dotes on him. Uh, whenever the other brothers do something, they're always wrong. Joseph's always right. Um, you know, Moses, by the way, you may not remember, never entered the promised land because he wasn't faithful. When God told him uh, to draw water from a rock one way, he decided to draw water from a rock another way. It's like he still got the water from the rock, but he didn't listen to the commands of the Lord. And God said, you know what? Sorry. You're not going in. There's Gideon who conquers all of Israel's enemies with just a few hundred men, sending thousands of soldiers away to show the might and power of God. And then in his last days, he comes home and he sets up an idol that all of Israel worships and is drawn away from the worship of God. You've got King Saul who put himself above the Lord. And so the Holy Spirit was taken from him and given to King David. And you know about King David, not only did he have an affair, not only did he murder the woman's husband who he had an affair with, but then he also didn't care for his children well, and they ended up fighting and and battling one another when he was gone. And then King Solomon, his son who came to the throne, he married foreign wives who worshipped idols, and then he worshipped idols with them. And it's because of his idolatry that the kingdom of Israel was split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. If you go through all the lists of the kings, some of them are just horrible the whole time. A lot of the good ones, though, they falter in the end. They falter in the end. It's just, it's just the story that keeps on getting told over and over and over again. It's actually kind of hard to find any of our heroes in the Bible who didn't have major failures. You know who one of them is? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. I, I can't find anything negative written about him in the Bible. It's very unusual. Very unusual. And he is not only faithful to do what God calls him to do for a time, but it seems like all the way to the end of his life, he continues to remain faithful to the Lord and faithful to his calling. A calling that by all Outward appearances looked like he had completed. Years later, he had to come back and finish. He had to come back and essentially fix, <laughs> fix the work that he had already done so well because others had torn it down. So not the walls. It wasn't the walls that were torn down, but it was the people of God that were torn down. The people of God who were faithful, who were who were serving the Lord, who were worshiping God. And then, and then in the end, it seems like they turned away. But Nehemiah was there to bring them back. Now, I want to be like Nehemiah, and I want you to be like Nehemiah. Now, hear me out for a moment. Even if you've already had your failure, there's still time to finish well. One of the great things about the scripture is that we see all these fallen heroes who still are heroes. We see people who struggled and, and failed, but then they were either restored, or by the grace of God, their legacy carried on. I don't believe that one that one set of failures uh, uh, eliminates all the good work that was done before. I don't believe that. You know, there's there's there that we would we would have no. Um, we would have no resources (laughs) in the church if everyone's failure eliminated the the good work they had done before. Everything would be lost. And I just think about, like, for those of you who who ever read any kind of theology or any kind of, you know, that like, uh, uh, writings about the Scripture, if you look into the lives of the people that wrote that stuff, you'll always be disappointed. (laughs) But the work is good. The work is good. But what would it look like for you and me to actually carry on our life in such a way that not only is this part of our life being lived worthy of the calling that we have in Christ Jesus, but that all of our life would be lived worthy of the calling of Christ Jesus. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to Nehemiah. We're going to start in chapter 12, and we're going to look at what it takes to finish well. Now in in Nehemiah, just to give you a recap, so I know that not everyone here went through our study with us, and that's fine because you're going to be able to to get a lot out of what we're looking at today, but uh, what you see in the book of Nehemiah is that uh, Nehemiah was a a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia, who was the nation that had control over Israel. And so when Nehemiah finds out that the walls around Jerusalem are still in shambles, that the city is still broken and destroyed after the conquest of that nation, uh, he goes to the king and the king says, hey, you look sad. What's going on? He says, I'm sad because my home, the the home of my ancestors, lies in ruins. And the king, King Artaxerxes, says to him, look, I'll give you whatever you need. Go and restore your homeland. Go and fix it. And he gives them all the supplies, all the money he needs, all the permissions that he needs. And Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, gathers the people of God, and they get to work on the wall. And even though there's opposition, even though there's challenge, they rebuild that wall in 52 days. And everyone knows that's a miracle. That that just blew the minds of both the workers and their opponents. No one thought it could be done. And their opponents would would mock them and laugh at them as well as threaten them with their lives. And they would say things like, you know, if a fox were to run on that wall, it would fall over. You call that a wall? That's not going to stop anything. But then once it was completed, everyone knew that that wall was going to provide safety for God's holy city. It was going to protect the people there And not only protect the people, but they had also rebuilt the temple of God. And they would bring protection to the temple. It would actually safeguard the worship of God in Jerusalem. And so the people gather. They hear the word of God. Some of them maybe for the first time in their lives. And there's this great repentance. This great sense of, we have failed the Lord. This is why destruction came to us in the first place but now we recommit ourselves and we're going to be faithful and they made all these oaths and commitments and what we see in the second half of chapter 12 is what happens after all those commitments are made and they're finally here they're finally ready to dedicate the walls so they've been built they've had their their time of, of repentance and asking forgiveness of the Lord and dedicating themselves and now they're going to dedicate the wall. And dedicating the wall for them is a symbol of God's faithfulness, of God's goodness, of His willingness not to abandon His people, but to stay with them. So that's kind of the wrap-up of where we've been. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it, but that's where we are. So, let's look in Nehemiah 12, starting in verse 27. It says this, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving, with music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from different villages. And when the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. So they had these rituals of purification that they did to say, we're coming to you, Lord, holy and clean and this wall is not is not ours it's yours and so they dedicate the wall in that way and it says I this is Nehemiah I had the leaders of Judah go up on the top of the wall and I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks one was placed on the top of the wall to the right towards the dung gate Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them and then it lists some names as well as priests and trumpets and also Zechariah son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, the son of Mattaniah, and on with the names. And they had musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. And Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. And at the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction, and I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gates of Ephraim to Jeshna gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. And the gate of the guards they stopped. And the two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests. And again we have the names. And the choirs sang under the direction of Jezrehiah, And on that day, they offered great sacrificing. And here it is, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. They were rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring in the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did also the musicians and gatekeepers according to the demands of David and in verse 47 uh, all Israel contributed daily portions for the musicians the gatekeepers they set aside portions for the Levites and the Levites set aside portion for the descendants of Aaron now this is not the kind of party that we would probably have today for some great communal uh, joyous occasion, right? You know I, don't know, I don't know what they did when they finished the big dig, but I guarantee you it was not a citywide worship service, right? This is not, this is not how we celebrate today. Uh, I don't know, you know, what, the, what other big projects may have been done here in the past, but, you know, I've never seen anyone any city have some major project completed and they come together for a big worship service it's just not what's done right because what what does that imply what does it imply when a great and mighty feat is accomplished that you have a worship service you know i even think about um you know the end of world war one the end of world war two when when parties broke out in the streets I've seen I've seen uh, pictures and I've read about those. I don't I don't remember reading about spontaneous public worship services. You know, it, it's just it's a whole mentality that the people of God had that's so different from how we would think about things like this. But what it suggests to me is this simple idea when God's people finished a great task, who did they believe did the work? Who did they believe made it happen? I know for myself, when I finish something, and, and it's never anything great, <laughs> you know, I've never made anything spectacular. I think about uh, the bushes I planted in front of the house, and I look back and I'm like, that's a job well done. That's pretty, I, I did that, right? And that's a little thing. It's a little thing, but you know what? I didn't do, I didn't do even a, a, a hundredth of the work that made those bushes possible there. I didn't make the bushes, <laughs> I didn't make them grow, I didn't give them the sun, I didn't give them water, I didn't give them nutrients in the soil. All I did was stick my shovel in the ground move some things around and put those things back. That's all I did. And I stood there with a hose. I didn't even have to carry the water. And there I get all excited about my accomplishment. Have you ever done anything like that? You do something, you're like, wow, that was pretty amazing that I did that. God did. God's the one who made it possible. He's the one who makes all, of, all the things around what you did, he makes all that happen so you can do that little thing. Now, that's a simple thing. Imagine if you do something really grand, how big your head might get. You know, it's... we. I don't know if you guys follow football. I know some of you do, but, but there's this guy. He used to play in New England, actually. His name's Tom Brady. Um, he... Uh, <laughs> I think he, he plays somewhere in the South now. I don't, I don't know where. It's, it's somewhere. It's, I don't know. But anyway, apparently he won a Super Bowl with his new team, whatever their name is. And, you know, so now all the question is, can he win two in a row? Can they win two in a row? And all of the commentary is basically like this. It's almost impossible to win two in a row because when you win... It is inevitable that you think you're really good, and so you don't try as hard as you did when you actually won. It goes to your head. They say it like this it's hard to stay hungry. It's hard to stay hungry for a second one. Now, uh, that can happen to us. It's a little different, but that, you know, we do something well, even for the Lord, and we think, Look at what I did. Look at what we did. And some of that's healthy, some of it's not. And then you think about what is it that allowed the people to do that project in 52 days? And I would argue that it was not only Nehemiah's, but the people's utter dependence on the Lord. All of a sudden, the wall's built, they're feeling safe. What do they do? Well, in this case, they do the right thing. They put the honor where the honor is due. And if you're doing our study with us, you'll you'll notice I talk about this in the study guide. Nehemiah could have made that parade be a celebration of the workers. He could have had the workers up there on the wall kind of saying to the whole community, look what these people did. Look what these faithful men and women did. Look what these servants of the Lord did. He doesn't do that. Who does he put up there? The band. He puts the worship team up there. Because it's not about what the people did. It's about what God has done. And what we saw in the last couple of chapters is that Israel, the people of Judah actually, they decided that they were going to honor God. They were going to commit their worship to him. And they were going to commit their resources to him. Meaning... their their bulls and their lambs and their wine and their grain and their money. But it's not until this moment that they actually bring it. They don't fulfill their vows until this dedication ceremony. And so to this point, we don't know if they're going to be faithful. But they are. They are. It's a great story of God's people doing what God's people ought to do. Here's the problem. All of this wonderful stuff happens and Nehemiah basically has a moment like this. Well, my job here is done. I've done what I came to do. Nehemiah is not from Jerusalem. He's not free to do what he wants. He's a servant of the king. He lives in Susa in Persia. He's on loan to Jerusalem from King Artaxerxes. And if you recall, a cupbearer to the king is a very high and important position. It's like a cabinet position for the president. So it it would be as if the president told his secretary of state, you know what, you go home and you do these things over there, but when you're done, you need to come back because you work in my cabinet. Nehemiah was actually gone for 12 years. For 12 years, he was the governor of Jerusalem For 12 years, the people of God were faithful. The people of God were successful. The people of God worshipped him. And then, chapter 13 happens. And the way this book ends, in some ways, is incredibly sad. There's a broken nation that's disobedient to the Lord. They find restoration. They find healing. They find forgiveness. They find obedience and faithfulness. They find joy. They find what it's like to live truly with God as their king. And then chapter 13 happens. Let's look at that together. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud. In the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Do you guys remember Tobiah? That's the guy who threatened to kill the Israelites if they kept building the wall. This is the enemy of Israel. He's not a Jew. He doesn't love the Lord. He tried to kill Nehemiah. And here's what the priest of God did He provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense. And the temple articles and the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions to the priest. He put this guy, he gave him an Airbnb bedroom right next to the Holy of Holies in the temple. The enemy of God. He's like, oh, you need a place to stay? Why don't you stay in God's house? I'll give you the nicest room. Oh, oh, those worship things that we need to keep holy for the Lord? Don't worry, we'll move them somewhere else. While all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I returned to the king. He came in the 20th year, he left in the 32nd year, that's 12 years. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the room, and I put it, put back into them the equipment for the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, that all the Levites, musicians responsible for the service, had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and I asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan son of Zakur, the son of Medaniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies their fellow levites so basically what was happening is either either there were some corrupt folks who were stealing from the temple or they just no one cared anymore about the worship of the lord and so all the people who were brought to jerusalem to worship the lord they didn't have any payment anymore so they went home they went back to working their fields they went back to their farms they went back to their herds because they couldn't survive in jerusalem without any income You see, all the things that God's people had done so faithfully in chapter 12, it's like they just stopped happening. They just stopped. In 15, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on the donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. Do you guys remember that he had already dealt with this problem? He had already dealt with the problem of working on the Sabbath. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, let's just just leave it at two simple things. God said so. Remember this? Right? I don't get to judge the law. The law gets to judge me. God said so. And when, when the people of God forsake the Sabbath, what they're saying is, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust you that I cannot not work on this day and everything will be fine. I don't trust you that your word is good I don't, I don't trust you, uh, the things... I mean, God said if you, if you work on the Sabbath, bad things are going to happen. They're saying, I don't believe that. And when they stop trusting God in one area of the law, they stop trusting God in all areas of the law. By the way, also a New Testament principle. James says, oh, uh, if you break one area of the law, you break all the law. If you're disobedient to God in one way, you're just disobedient to God. It's not itemized. You know, if you're a parent, you don't think about your children and you say, oh, you know what? Well, they do all these things that I said, so who cares if they do these other things I said? You know, it's not like... it all. It's just, it's just obedience. Because in the end, we don't actually... We're not actually obedient to rules. We're actually obedient to a person. So we're not rejecting rules. We're rejecting a person. And God doesn't like that very much. So here these people are desecrating the Sabbath. And in verse 18 of chapter 13, Nehemiah says, Didn't your ancestors do the same thing? So that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? He's like, don't you people remember why the walls were broken down? Don't you remember why we were destroyed by our enemies? And now you're doing the exact same thing again. Now, first impulse, wow, those horrible people. What were they thinking? Later reflection, you know, when you're able to pull the mirror out and you say, why do I do that? How could I make those choices? How could I be so foolish? Because I think we all know in our own lives there are times when God showed up faithfully, We responded in worship and gratitude and joy. And then we went back to the very thing that God had saved us from. Why do we do that? I heard from the back, we don't know better. The problem is, my friend, is that we do know better because we read about it, we see it in others, we experience it ourselves. We know better, and we keep doing it. And so here's the, thing about, here's the thing about restoration. Here's the thing about repentance. Here's the thing about committing ourselves to the Lord. It has to be done over and over and over and over again. It has to. There is, a, there is like a, a principle at work in the universe that if you're not actively keeping things in the right place, they will go to the wrong place. Ask any mother. <laughs> Do things end up where they belong? No, they end up somewhere else. <laughs> and it drives, it could drive you crazy, right? But it seems like there is this law of the universe. You know, and if, if, you're, if you're into science, you know, a little bit like... I'm I'm no scientist, but the second law of thermodynamics is, in layman's terms, it's that things move from order to disorder. And it's actually a little more complex than that. It has to do with how energy dissipates in a system. But without any kind of external force, things move from order to disorder. Things do not move from disorder to order without some external force. And things do not stay ordered without an external force. Uh, and, and you think about, um, you know, if, if, you, if you have, if you, have uh, you create anything, you build anything, what's going to happen to it over time? It decays, right? It decays. It falls apart. It gets broken. It gets messed up. And so what do you have to do? You have to repair it. I mean, I love the perfect image of these walls. Do you know how many times the walls around Jerusalem were rebuilt? Anyone know? I don't don't know the number, but it happened over and over and over again. Why? Because walls don't last forever. Right? Your house won't last forever if you don't keep fixing it. Your relationships won't last forever if you don't keep fixing them. Uh, That diet doesn't keep itself right you know all these things that we do and we just are we come to our faith and sometimes we think well we make this decision and so everything should be fine now but we drift we drift i have a friend who sails and i asked him one time how do you keep the sailboat going in the right direction because you know if you if you're actually into sailing like you actually are kind of going like this and so it, it's, you can't just point it in one direction and you, and you keep going the right way because you have to turn with the wind and catch the breeze and all that. He said, what I do is I find a point in the distance and I just correct and correct and correct and correct and correct. And he corrects the entire time he's crossing the lake. That sounds exhausting to me. I want to just set the rudder and then, you know, chit-chat while it just is locked in place and we go where we need to go. But it doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't work like that. We always drift. We always... It's, it's like a law of the universe. If you are not actively pursuing the Lord, you will move away from Him. If you are not actively uh, examining your heart for disobedience then you will become less less obedient if you are not actively working on your relationship with the body of Christ then you will fall away and so the really i don't know if it's sad i was going to say sad the really difficult message that i have for you today is your work will never be done your work will never end It will never end. And that, I think, is why most people do not finish well. Is eventually we get tired. We get complacent. We think we don't need it anymore. And then it all falls apart. There is one other reason that walls fall down. People attack them. They hurl things at them. Uh, in in more recent history they shoot cannonballs at them <laughs> they bomb them they you know walls will not last forever when someone's attacking them and my friends you have an enemy who is trying to tear down your walls he wants to destroy your city so to speak he wants to kill you he wants to But if you continue to work on your walls, we're, we're in metaphor land here. If you continue to work on your walls, then they will not crumble. But if you think, well, I built them really well 10 years ago, so I think I'm fine, they will not last. They will not last. Nothing lasts like that. Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He's got a clean house, literally. The temple is filled with with this enemy of Israel's belongings, and he literally throws them out. He's got a clean house when it comes to the Sabbath, and he says, look, you you cannot be doing this on the Sabbath. God said to rest, and you're not resting. He says, you're stirring up the wrath of God against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. So what does he do? He closes the gates on Friday afternoon when the sun goes down. And he doesn't open up again until Saturday evening when the sun goes down. So he says, you, if you come here to trade, you cannot even get into the city. He puts a barrier around the people to protect them against their own sin. Isn't that interesting? An external barrier. It turns out these walls are not just about keeping the enemies out. It's about keeping the faithful ones inside, keeping them faithful. I told you at the beginning of this chapter, they read that the Ammonites and the Moabites should not be admitted into the assembly of God, and yet the people of God were intermarrying with them. But this is not about racism. It's not about ethnicity. It's about idol worship. Idol worship. Because you know what? When a Moabitess... Who's not an idol worshiper comes to Israel, she becomes the great grandmother of King David. She becomes the great, great, great grandmother of Jesus, Ruth, is welcomed with open arms into the assembly of God because she's not an idol worshiper. But when the Moabites and the Ammonites, when they are idol worshippers and they come into Jerusalem, it draws God's people away from worship. It says half, this is verse 24, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, the language of one of the other peoples. And they didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. How do you raise children to follow the Lord if they don't even understand the words of the scripture? You can't. So it's just, you know, like, what's the big deal about them speaking a certain language? This is why. It shows us that the the Jewish people who are marrying... uh, someone from another, another place, from another faith, they're not even trying. They're not even trying to have their kids grow up in the faith of the Lord. If they speak the other language, they're going to know the, the, the other scriptures, so to speak. Guys, there's a whole lot for that if you're a parent today. <laughs> you know, do your children know the language of the scripture? Or do they know the language of the world? There's a whole lot there, which may be a sermon for another day. But it says that he rebuked them. He called curses down on them. He beat them. He pulled out their hair. This would not fly today, right? Imagine, just imagine for a moment if I came in and you guys were doing something you shouldn't be doing and I started ripping your hair out. (laughs) And I called down curses on you. I would be out of here so fast. You guys would kick me out of here so fast. Now, fortunately, he had the backing of of the king of persia so uh, you know he could kind of do some of those things but he says he says you can't do this was it not because of marriages like this that solomon king of israel sinned among the many nations there was no king like them he was loved by his god and god made him kingdom over king over all israel but even he was led into sin by these foreign women by the way it, it could have easily have been foreign men for the women but it was happened to be foreign women must we hear now that you too are doing this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? And then one of the sons of, of Joiada, son of Eliashib, so this is the grandson of the high priest. He married the daughter of the other guy that was trying to kill all the, all the people in Jerusalem, Sambalot. This is the guy, this is like the, the biggest, baddest enemy of Israel who threatened to kill Nehemiah He marries that guy's daughter. So Nehemiah says, I drove him away too. I purified the priests and the Levites and everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his task. And I made provisions for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. What's he talking about there? He says, look, the worship of God was gone. It was gone in every possible way. The priests and the Levites had left because no one was providing for their needs. There wasn't even wood. Why, Why the wood? You can't burn sacrifices without wood. There wasn't even wood for the altar in the temple. Out of an entire nation, no one had gathered wood for the altar at the temple. Guys, this is what happens when the people of God drift. Because nature literally abhors a vacuum. So if you kick the worship of God out of your, out of your community, then it will be filled with all sorts of other things. It will be filled with your enemies taking up residence in your temple. It will be filled with uh, foreign gods and foreign scriptures and, and, and false... Uh, Worship. Even the priests will be breaking the law of God, and not not just. It really gets me. He doesn't just this this grandson of the high priest who is going to be a priest or is a priest. He doesn't just marry someone from another nation. He marries the daughter of their greatest enemy. This is so disturbing. It's so disturbing because I think when I read this, this could happen to any of us. If you take a little drive around New England, you will encounter church after church after church after church that was faithfully preaching the gospel 200 years ago and now would have a hard time telling you what the gospel is if you, if you gave them hints. You understand? This is just what happens. I don't know if you guys know this, but when you think of like the most conservative denomination in the country today, what do you think of? What was it? Yeah, Southern Baptist, right? The most conservative denomination in the country, Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist was not a conservative denomination 45 years ago. They were abandoning the gospel, abandoning the scripture, abandoning Christ. And then people worked to bring the gospel back to the Southern Baptist Church. And it took took a decade or so to turn that church around. And you could have all sorts of opinions on, on where the church is today and what's going on. But I'm telling you, churches drift Churches drift. It just happens. If you, are, if you and we are not paying attention, then it, will, it can all be lost. It can all be lost so fast. So fast. Next Sunday will be the last sermon in Nehemiah. Okay? So this isn't the last one. This is the last lesson in our groups, but this is not the last sermon. The reason I tell you that is this sermon is a downer. This message is a downer. But here's the thing. You know who it's not a downer for? For Nehemiah. Look at what he says. Verse 14. He, he kind of clears house, cleans house. And he says, Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its service. Then in verse 22 in the second half after he deals with the Sabbath stuff. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. And then verse 29, when he, when he deals with these unfaithful priests, he says, remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood. But then the very last verse, remember me with favor, my God. Nehemiah is the winner at the end of this book. Even when everyone else has turned away from God, Nehemiah is steadfast. He is faithful. He has been guarding himself. He has been continuing his relationship with the Lord. He has been obedient to the Word of God. Everything that he does, everything he does in this book, is done out of faith and faithfulness. And so what's amazing to me is that no matter what anyone else is doing, we can be faithful. No matter what happens anywhere else in any other church or in any other person's heart and life and and their actions, we can remain faithful. And it may feel like you're alone. It may feel like you're doing it all alone. Maybe because others in your family are not believers. Maybe because there are other Christians you're connected to and they do all sorts of things that we know shouldn't be done. Maybe it's because as a church, we look at the churches around us and we think, you know, they're not, they're not following. I'm not saying none of them. I'm just saying they're out there. They're not following the gospel. And we, th- and we think we're all alone. But you know what? You're never alone. You're never alone because who is it besides Nehemiah that's faithful in every single page of this book? The Lord. The Lord is the only other person <laughs> in the book of Nehemiah that's faithful from beginning to end. And here's another insight from Sonia that I just love. The beginning of the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah crying out for God's favor. The very last book, the very last verse of Nehemiah is Nehemiah crying out for God's favor. Nehemiah knew where to turn from beginning to end to find everything that he needed to do everything he was called to do. And it was the Lord. Because even more faithful than Nehemiah was the faithfulness of the Father in heaven. In church, that's what we have to turn to today. We have a God who is faithful when we are not faithful. We have a God who is faithful when no one else around us is faithful. We have a God who will restore Israel again after he just restored Israel again, after he just restored Israel again, after he just restored Israel again. And if he'll do it for them, he'll do it for us. And he has. And he will do it again. And no matter how many times your life needs to be restored, God will restore you when you turn to Him because He's the one who's faithful. So the message today is not, hey, pick yourselves up off the ground and be more faithful. The message today is, hey, the Lord will pick you up off the ground and make you more faithful because He is faithful. So our trust from beginning to end is always in the Lord the worship of the people after finishing the wall was the appropriate response because they knew God was the one who did it. And that's why worship is the faithful response, is the right response when we have disobeyed God, but he calls us back. Do you see? That's the message. That's the hope. And that's where our trust is. Now, Nehemiah did face these challenges throughout this whole book. He did it with joy. He did it with trust. He did it with obedience. Okay? It's not that those things don't matter. It's that where did he find the ability to do those things? He found them in the Lord. He found them in the Lord. He found his joy in the Lord. He found his trust in the Lord. And he found his obedience in the Lord. So my invitation for you today, look to the Lord and find those things because he has them for you just like he did for Nehemiah. Let's pray. God, we have, we have been uh, continuing this, this journey of restoration together through the book of Nehemiah. And we come to an end of a book that, again, in some ways just seems so sad. And it seems a little scary. It, 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 um, it doesn't paint this rosy picture but it paints a very real and honest picture of what it looks like for the people of God to get excited about you, but then, but then let our focus, our determination, and our effort, let it wane. Let it turn away. Let it be, uh, let ourselves become distracted. And Lord, when we come distracted like that, we know what will happen when we take our eyes off of you we know what will happen and that's why we said today with our eyes fixed on Jesus with our eyes fixed on Jesus he is the point on the other side of the lake that helps us to chart a course that's faithful and true even with all the turns even with all the corrections he's the one that's going to draw us to the other side to the right way So, Lord, help us today to fix our eyes on Christ Jesus, to fix our eyes on your word, to fix our hearts on the gospel. And not be tempted to put our attention somewhere else, but to truly submit ourselves to the fact that we must over and over and over again lay ourselves bare before you be examined, to be tried, to be tested, and that wherever there is anything there, Lord, that is not pleasing to you, that you would show us, and we would come once again to your throne of grace for help in our time of need, to be restored, to be forgiven, to be healed once again. Lord, we pray this with hope and expectation because there is no version there is no version of this story where you don't respond to that kind of